us, sustains us, enlightens us, empowers us, motivates us, convicts us. And so now as we come to this passage in Genesis, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand it. That he would put a great love in our heart for this passage and an understanding of how important this is to understanding everything else in the Word of God. Holy Spirit, you gave us this, this book. You promised you would lead us into all truth and bring to our remembrance everything that you've taught us. So now we pray that you would continue to teach us and continue to bring what you have taught us to our remembrance. For Christ's sake, amen. Our scripture passage today is Genesis 11, verse 10, through verse 24. Let us stand for the word of God. Genesis 11, 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad, and he had other sons and daughters. And Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arpachshad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah. And he had other sons and daughters. And Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber. And he had other sons and daughters. And Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg. And he had other sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru, and he had other sons and daughters. And Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Serug. And Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Serug, and he had other sons and daughters. And Serug lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Serug lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he had other sons and daughters. And Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram. Nahor. And Haran. You may be seated. say, Joe, I came to church to be encouraged and enlightened by the reading of the preaching of the Word of God. Why didn't you pick something like John 3, 16 or Romans 8, 28? 
or Psalm 23? Why read a list of obscure names of people that lived thousands of years ago? It doesn't even say anything about them except how old they were and that they had several sons and daughters. Well, I'll tell you why. Because the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. <clears throat> that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped unto every good work. Some passages seem to be more profitable than other passages. Some passages seem to be easier to understand than others. But they're all profitable. There's something to learn and something to be, uh, to be benefited by in all of the verses of the Holy Scripture, including this list of names that I've just read to you. This is a very important passage of Scripture. I've enjoyed studying it. It gets us from the flood to Abraham. You know... Um, People say, well, the Bible can't be trusted in these early chapters because the various things like creation, the flood, are just being passed down by oral tradition. And everybody knows when you pass something down by oral tradition, you're going to get something mixed up. Well, besides the fact this is the Word of God, that's not the way it happened. Here's how it's happened. You got Adam, first man. There were people right up to the flood that knew Adam. Noah knew them. And everybody knew Noah for the next 400 years until Abraham. So you got Adam, Noah, Abraham. How would you like to have those three bit for teachers? And so the word of God remained pure throughout all these early days. Now, why is this chapter here? Why did they just list these names? Obviously, it's the descendants of Shem, one of the sons of Noah. One of the best explanations that I've seen of the purpose of this chapter was written many years ago by Francis Schaeffer. So I'm going to read three paragraphs from that book on Genesis. And here's why he said it's important for us to understand these 10, 11 generations. So just as a child needs to be told something of his personal history, Mankind needs to be told of its history. Unless we are told about our beginnings, which secular study cannot trace, we cannot make sense of our present history. 20th century man is looking at something, himself, and the facts of history. He knows that something is really there, but he doesn't know what. This is exactly what Genesis 1 through 11 tells him. These chapters give the history which comes before anything secular historians 
have been able to ascertain. And it is that pre-secular history which gives meaning to man's present history. Imagine a little child who has not yet been told that he is indeed the legitimate heir to the throne. He lives in pauper's rags. Then somebody comes and tells him his previous history, and he takes his rightful place. It is exactly this that we need. And it is exactly this that the history of Genesis 1 through 11 gives. It sets in perspective all the history we now have in our secular study. In these chapters, we learn of the historic space-time creation out of nothing. The creation of man in God's image. A real, historic, space-time, moral fall and the understanding of the present abnormality in the divisions that exist between God and man, man and himself, man and man, man and nature, and nature and nature. These chapters also tell us the flow of the promise God made from the beginning concerning the solution to these divisions. This is what Genesis 1 through 11 gives us, and it is climactic. Naturalistic, rationalistic history only sees the results. If I am to understand the world as it is, and myself as I am, I must know the flow of history given in these chapters. Take this away, and the flow of the rest of history collapses. That's why we're being so repetitious in reviewing what these 11 chapters say. I want you to be able to repeat them, what these chapters contain, just as quickly as I can, or more so, and teach them to your children. Everything else we know depends upon what's in these 11 chapters. So let's review again. First chapter of Genesis, God created the world out of absolutely nothing to be a stage where the drama of redemption would take place. Then in the next section of Genesis, you see uh, the fall, the creation of man and woman, and the fall of man into sin and plunging the whole human race into sin. We see God entering into a covenant of works with mankind as the representative of the human race so that whatever he did, the consequences would be experienced by every other human being that would ever live. And then we see the introduction of the gospel in the third chapter of Genesis. The first time it ever occurs, the covenant of grace, when God promises that through the seed of the woman, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, he would destroy evil objectively and subjectively and save his people from their sins. We see later in the next chapter how two streams of humanity flow from Adam and Eve. One, the descendants of Cain. The other, the descendants of Seth. Cain's line is the ungodly rebellious line. Builds a culture, a highly technical culture, artistic culture, on a principle of revolt against God. The other stream is the stream of Seth, the godly stream. 
If they're faithful to the Lord, they're going to bring God's blessings down through the history of the race. But they weren't faithful. There was a synthesis that took place. The sons of God, that is the descendants of Seth, intermarried with the daughters of men, that is the descendants of Cain, and that accelerated evil with those two lines blended. And it brought the need for a global flood to wash away the rebellion that was in the world. After that flood washed away the, the, the wickedness of the world, at least objectively and externally, God entered into a great covenant with Noah. And he said, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to totally destroy the world anymore. I'm going to maintain the seasons. I'm going to maintain the regularity of life. I'm not going to let any man or anything destroy life on this planet until all of my purposes have been accomplished. And I have saved all of my people from their sins because I am not willing that any of my people should perish, but all of them should come to repentance. We saw that that great covenant was based not on how good Noah was, but on atonement, the atonement of sacrifice of thousands of animals to say that our standing with God depends not upon who we are and what we've done, but solely upon the propitiatory sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. So God turns this new world over to Noah and his sons. And they start to build this world. And no sooner do they plant their grapevines than Noah gets drunk. And Ham, his son, mocks his father. And so once Noah came to, he cursed Ham through Canaan. And said Canaan's uh, descendants would all be slaves throughout history unless they believed the truth as it is in Jesus. And then he pronounced a great blessing on Japheth and uh, uh, Shem. And he said, Shem, you're going to be in a special relationship with God, you and your descendants. Shemites, Semites. You're going to be in a special relationship with Jehovah. Jehovah is going to come incarnate with your flesh and your blood in centuries to come. Before that, all the Japhethites are going to spread all over the world and make money and own land and become powerful. And then once their descendants become powerful and numerous, I'm going to bring them into the tents of Shem. I'm going to bring them into saving faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're going to dwell in your tents along with the descendants of Canaan. Then in the 10th chapter of Genesis, we see that great table of nations where God shows where all the descendants of Noah migrated to all over the world. The descendants of Japheth migrated north and west. The descendants of Ham migrated east and south. And the, and the descendants of Shem uh, to the Middle East. In the Tower of Babel, no, no sooner had the flood gotten over than the Tower of Babel. And they hadn't learned yet. So they decided to build a city and a tower for three reasons. One, to make for themselves a name. 
They wanted to live, mankind, at least most of it, wanted to live in terms of self-definition, in, in terms of their defining themselves. They didn't want to depend upon God telling them who they are. Second reason is they didn't want to be scattered as God wanted them to be. They wanted to have a unity, a massive metropolitan area, a unity without God that would greatly increase their power for evil. And thirdly, they wanted to build an attack tower. That's what the Tower of Babel was, a ziggurat, an attack, an assault tower. And, the, and they wanted to attack God and everything God stood for. They wanted to attack his law, his name, and have a world in which God himself is banished. God said, oh yeah? So God comes down and he confuses all their language. They all had one language before that. I'm going to sidetrack right here. I thought not about doing it, but it's too interesting. There is a book that I read called The Maps of the Ancient Sea Kings. There was a cartologist half a century ago, expert in maps, who studied ancient maps. And he noticed that the maps that were done in the Middle Ages, uh, the latitude was good, but the longitude that it never to get perfect. But then he found some ancient references to maps that were perfect. And he found maps going hundreds of years before Christ with the shores of North and South America, Europe and Africa accurately drawn hundreds of years before Christ. But more amazingly, there was Antarctica without ice. Now everybody had to speak the same language to do something like that. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if these ancient maps were drawn right before the Tower of Babel. And so that gives uh, these uh, rebels against God power. If they're unified, if they speak the same language, and so God took away that power, confused their languages, and those who spoke one language and went off, went off somewhere, or these went off another, into little many nations, and God's answer to one world government was nationalism and localism. And now we're to Shem. You notice we've used the word throughout the Bible so far at Genesis, Toledoth. That the book of Genesis is divided into ten Toledoths. And a Toledoth is a record of an outcome of somebody's life. The first one is found in Genesis 2. This is the outcome of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Then, this is the outcome of Adam's life. Then, this is the outcome of Adam's son's lives. Then, this is the outcome of Noah's life. 
Then this is the outcome of Noah's son's lives. Now we are narrowed down to Shem's sons. One of whom would be the savior of the world. And so the New Testament begins with this word. If it was written in Hebrew. This is the Toledoth of Jesus Christ. This is the record of the outcome of Jesus' life. And there in that genealogy, in Luke's version, you see Shem. So in the book of Genesis, the scene continues to narrow because it's pointing us to the one about whom the whole Bible speaks. Jesus Christ, the son of Shem. Now this little, this little um, genealogy only have names and years and they had other sons and daughters and that's it. Because it is to get us, it's like it's, they're hurrying up. It's like uh, Moses is hurrying up to get to Abraham. In these other genealogies, there were little extraneous things brought in. Peleg lived when the earth was divided. Nimrod was a great tyrant and hunter of men. There's nothing like this in this. This is just names and years and hurrying up to get to the end of this genealogy. This genealogy has an ending. It's Abraham. And then the next Toledoth says, this is the outcome of Terah's life. Who was Terah? Abraham's father. And here we are focused now on the great man of the Old Testament to whom the greatest covenant in the Old Testament was given. The Abrahamic covenant. The heart of the gospel. And the Savior of the world would eventually come and put all of those promises into play. So, this is the big thing. Now, notice a couple things about them. They lived shorter lives, but they started having babies earlier. Let's look at some of these ages. You remember in the other genealogies, people lived to be 900, 980, 969. Well, here are the ages in Shem's descendants. Shem lived to be 600 years old. Arpachshed, 438. Shelah, 433. Eber, 464. Peleg, 239. Ru, 239. Serug, 230. Nahor, 148. Terah, 205. God said he was going to start shortening people's lives. That was a part of the curse. But they started having babies a lot earlier. In these other genealogies, they didn't have babies till they're four or five hundred years old. Now in this genealogy, they start having babies when they're in their thirties. So let's figure up quickly. How many people could be in the earth between Shem and Abraham? 
Now remember, Abraham was only 10, 11 generations away from Shem. And Abraham visited all kinds of cities. I mean, there were cities and towns and villages everywhere from Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan, all over the place. How can that be? Well, if during these generations from Shem and Abraham, which is about 400 years, uh, if everybody had eight children on an average, two boys and two girls, which was perfectly uh, allowable since you lived to be a few hundred years old and gave birth when you were young, then by the time of Abraham, there would be 25,165,824 individuals. You can check me on that. But if everybody had 10 children, then by the time of Abraham, there would be 292,968,758 people on the face of this earth. Now, there's one thing about the gospel. And that is that God promises to renew things, to restore things, to make life better than it was before the gospel came. So I want to read to you a prophecy and a promise that says, although now, during the days of Shem, people don't live to be so long old, and you and I don't live to be so old. There's a promise in the scriptures that someday we're all going to live to be hundreds of years of age again. So, by the way, you know what the average life expectancy is today? Look up in your magazines and you'll say it's 75, 76. If you take into consideration Abortion, it's 46. Life expectancy, 46 years. All right, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 65. And here's a prophecy that says that God's going to renew and restore and bring greater days than the days of Shem or even the days that, uh, that we have today. He says in Genesis 65... Verse 20. No longer will there be in Jerusalem an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days for the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. 
and my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It says there's coming a day when if anybody dies at the age of 100, everybody else is going to wonder what he did so bad to die so young. That some people try to excuse it by saying, well, this is talking about heaven. The only problem is you don't die at any age in heaven. Other people say, well, this is talking about the second coming. There's not one word about the second coming in this text. This is life on earth. Building houses. Growing vineyards. Having babies. You don't have babies in heaven. So what does that mean? If somebody dies at the age of 100, he's died in his youth, and everybody else is wondering what he did so bad to die so young. Now, what does that say about those old fellers that wondered what he did so bad to die so young? They were very old. Hundreds of years old. How can this be? Well, the Bible teaches us over and over in one way or another that gradually... By the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is going to conquer the world. And the power of the gospel is going to evade, invade every area of life. And the vast majority of human beings on this planet will be converted. And the number of those that will be converted are greater than the stars, the sky, and the sand of the seashore. When that happens, the gospel is going to invade the scientific industry, the medical industry, we're going to find uh, cures for things we can't find for uh, cures for now. We're going to see life expectancy greatly extended because of the power of the gospel and its effect on medical research, on science, and on the whole course of life. So I not only think that someday people, Christians, will live hundreds of years of age. And if anybody dies so young, they'll wonder what he did so bad. But since the gospel is more glorious than the Old Testament, I believe we're going to live longer than those people in the book of Genesis. But nevertheless, there you have it. I have a lot of premillennial dispensational rapturous books in my library and I don't have any explaining that chapter by premillennialists. All right, now let's go back to our text. What's the message here? Well, it's sort of sad, but it's also glorious. 25 million people between Noah and Abraham. Most of them apostate again. The world was apostate after the synthesis between the line of Cain and the light of Seth. 
God had to bring a flood. And now in less than 400 years, between Shem and uh, Abraham, most of this covenant line of people were apostate. They no longer worship God. They no longer live for him. And Abraham's father, Terah, was a moon worshiper. So Abraham comes from a pagan family. There was still a clear line. God's not going to leave himself without a witness. God's always going to have his people. And it's the line of Shem. Not because Shem was great or godly or righteous or and you know, this 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 genealogy treats him like a king. You write of genealogies of kings. This is a genealogy of Seth. Greatly honored by God. Had descendants that were honored by God. But he himself was a sinner. And most of the race of millions of people were in rebellion against Almighty God. With Noah. They had Noah there. They could talk to Noah's sons. We went through the flood. They could talk to Noah who had talked to people who talked to Adam. And yet, the vast majority of people by the time of Abraham were moon worshipers or something else. I want you to notice something about this genealogy that is very obvious. Chapter 11, verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. He became the father of a park, a park Chad. Verse 11. And then he had other sons and daughters. Verse 12, a park Chad lived 35 years. And a park Chad lived 300 years, 400 years after the, being the father of Sheila. And he had other sons and daughters. Sheila had other sons and daughters. Eber had other sons and daughters. Balak had other sons and daughters. Ru had other sons and daughters. Serug had other sons and daughters. Nahor had other sons and daughters. But there was only one son in each of these descendants that God chose. To be the ancestor of the Savior of the world. That's how apostate things were. You had Shem had all kinds of children, and then God chose one, a pop chat. He had all kinds of children in 438 years. God chose one to be the recipient of his goodness. Sheila.
Sheila lived for those four centuries. Had all kinds of sons and daughters. God chose one. Hebrew. The father of the Hebrews. Eber had a bunch of children. God chose one. Peleg. God chose one. So down through all these ten generations until you get to Abraham. God chose by his grace to save one in each generation from the apostasy that dominated the world. And that's the way it was for 11 generations until Abraham. And then there was a great revival of the church in Abraham's day. And he was the father of the Hebrew people and the one to whom God made an Abrahamic covenant. But God, in an apostate world, full of rebels against him, God has always had people that he has chosen. Why did God choose a pock chad? I'm sure it wasn't because he was such a godly guy. It was because God is a God of sovereign grace. And he is determined that he will always have a people. And that's the theme of all of Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament. God has chosen a people by his grace, and it's not because of anything worthy in those people. Where the rest of the world is apostate and wicked, God has determined that he will have a thin line in the Old Testament of people that will taste his grace and mercy. I go to other churches and check out their hymn books. Next time you go to a Southern Baptist church or particularly a Methodist church, see how many of their hymns are on predestination. See how many of their hymns are sung in praise of God's divine election. And yet that's a theme that, like this red ribbon, that goes throughout the scriptures. Let's look at some of them. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And let's start with verse 6. In a world that was full of ungodly people, God says this in verse 6 to Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Shem. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose you, descendants of Abraham? You were more in number than these other nations? Nah. You were pathetically small. 
You were wealthier, you were godlier than these other nations. No. You are the people of God to this day for one reason. God decided he was going to make you his people. No other reason. It was God's choice. It was God's determination. You are the people of God for his own possession out of all the other peoples upon the face of the earth because the Lord loved you and chose to save you. No other reason. Let's turn to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. Let's start with verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for he is lovely. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven, in earth, in the seas, and in all deeps. God chose Jacob for himself. Didn't ask approval. Didn't ask Jacob's opinion. Wasn't anything in Jacob that stirred God's heart. God does what he pleases. You see, there is this thing. And you see it in the descendants of Shem. It pleased God to choose one man in ten generations, in each of ten generations, and the rest to be punished for their apostasy. Turn to Zechariah. This is a great one. Zechariah chapter 3. Not Zephaniah. I put it in the wrong book. Zechariah chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? You know what a brand is? It is a dried up broken twig. That's the only thing it can be, it's good for is be burned. And the picture here is of a pile of these brands, a pile of these worthless twigs you can't do anything with, being burned up in a big bushfire. And God reaches down 
and pulls one of the brands from the burning. That's all you are. If you think you're more than that, you have too high self-esteem. You're a dried up, worthless twig that you should be burned. And God in his sovereign grace decided to snatch you out of that fire and let the other twigs burn. And you'll always have too high opinion of yourself. And you'll never get anything else straight in life unless you see that's all you are. God didn't snatch you from the flames because you were a very fruitful vine. You had all kinds of apples on it. God chose you to pull you out of that fire because that's what he wanted to do. You're a brand. Other people burning, we're watching the world burn. We're watching a whole culture burn. And God pulled you out of that fire. That's all you are. And he did it for his own glory. This is also a theme in the New Testament. Turn with me in the New Testament to John chapter 15. John 15. You got it? And here's what it says. You did not choose me. That's Jesus talking. You did not choose me. But I have a free will. And I act on that free will. You did not choose me. I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask of the Father, in his name he may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. An American culture on fire with bombed police cars in Atlanta, Georgia, the past two nights. Hate you. For one reason, Jesus chose you to be his own. And if Jesus had not have chosen you, you would never have chosen him. One more chapter. John chapter 1. And let's start reading with 
verse 10. Speaking of Jesus, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world didn't know Him. He came into His own, the Jews, the Shemites. He came into His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. In Jesus' day, most people hated Him. In your day, most Americans hate Jesus. But in Jesus' day, even though most people hated Him, there were some, not many, there were some that received Him and believed in His name as their Lord and Savior. Same today. We live in a culture that hates Jesus, except you don't hate him. And there's a thin line of people in this country who do not hate him. They've received him as their Lord and Savior. They believe in him. Why? Why is it if Jesus lived in a world where most people hated him, and you and I live in a world where most people hate Jesus, why is it that anybody believes in him? It says that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those that believe in his name. Those that received him, why did they do it? Those that believed in his name, why did they do it? They were smarter than everybody else. They were more oriented toward theology than other people. Some people like golf. Some people like football. They liked theology. Were they better than other people? Those that received Christ, why did they do it? Look at verse 13. Now, most evangelical Christians that I know make a big mistake about verse 12. Make sure you don't. I'm going to misread verse 12. And you tell me how I misread it. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those that believe in his name. Did you see how I read it incorrectly? I'll read it again. But as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those that believe in his name. You say, Joe, you're embarrassing yourself. You read it right. No, I didn't. I read it wrong. We'll try one more time. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. I read it incorrectly again. I read it as if there were a period. There was a period at the end of that verse. That's the way most people read it. But there's a comma, or maybe even a semicolon in your Bible. Because the sentence goes on to the next, uh, paragraph, next verse. What it says is this, But as many as received him, 
to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in a world where everybody hates Jesus, why does anybody believe in him? They were born of God. Your biggest obstacle on your way to Christ is your will. It's not your biggest help. Your free will is your biggest obstacle because your free will just keeps saying no. So if you believe in Jesus and you've received him in an American culture where most people hate him, why did you? Because you were born of God. God took the first step. God introduced a new birth and a new life into your deadness. And you believed in him because of God's first step. And if he hadn't have taken that first step, if he had not introduced a new life and a new birth in you, you'd be standing there like every other Christ-hater in this country. So don't forget these things. I mean, the genealogy of Shem. Ten genealogies. Ten generations. The covenant line. The Mes uh, Mes messianic line. Most were Christ-haters. This was just right after the flood. This was right after Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth saw God destroy the world. You reckon they taught their children anything? You reckon they taught their children about the flood? And how the ark is a symbol of salvation in Christ? Noah talked to people who talked to Adam. You reckon all those generations before the flood taught their children anything? But there was one in each generation because of God's grace and not because of anything else. Let us pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for this little genealogy. We thank you for what it teaches about man and there's no hope in man for salvation. We thank you for the way it teaches us that salvation is by sheer grace. May we never lose sight of that. And may we not forget that grace is greater than all our sins. And though we live in a 
culture on fire, a culture full of men, women, and young people that hate you. Your grace is able to overcome all that hostility. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And we look forward to that day when through the power of the gospel presented from our mouths when the power of the gospel shall overcome that hostility. We pray that it will happen in our lifetime. We pray that we will always see ourselves for what we really are and be grateful and be grateful enough to share the truth of the gospel of grace to a burning world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand and confess our faith in the living God as we recite together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. May be seated. As you take the Lord's Supper today, uh, I want you to only meditate on one sentence. Don't think about anything else. <coughs> Just think about Jesus saying to you, I did not, you did not choose me. I chose you. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for reminding us of that through the Lord's Supper.